briefly that God doesn't need us. He can do whatever he wants without us. But he's pleased to continue to use people. Whoever threw the Bible away didn't know they were sowing a seed that God was going to raise up and use use for his purposes. The Holy Spirit accomplishes God's work, and he does it through God's word. And that's a great, great reminder. He is the initiator. We're on the receiving end of all of that. Let's pray, and we'll get into the word. Father, thanks for Greg and his lovely wife and the work of the Gideons. And I just pray that for whoever you're touching today, they'll be one of the few good that contributes personally time and energy in the work of the Gideons, gives financially to the work of the Gideons, Lord, which which is your work. It is sowing the seed of faith in the gospel, Lord, here and abroad, pretty much everywhere. We ask your blessing on them going forward. Lord, we know it is your spirit that enlightens our eyes, that opens our hearts to see truth. We ask that you'd help us to do more of that this morning. Help us to hear and see the things you mean for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. I was going to mention, too, we prayed uh, before the service, as we always do, but just a reminder, uh, pray for the Christians in Afghanistan. You know, that country is just submerged overnight. It's in the news every day because of the fiasco that the U.S. getting out of there has become. But, you know, the Americans that now are in danger even getting to the airport are still the ones with the most hope based on what can be seen. There's still lots of Christians uh, Voice of the Martyrs, you guys know, we, we talk about what they shared with us every week to pray for folks. Uh, one of the stories that came out, I don't think Bill will be sharing this one later, uh, one of the stories that came out was just this last summer, June and July, n- numerous pastors went on record officially with local governments that they were Christians, that they were not Muslims. And they did so to make sure that people coming behind them would have the strength, the courage, the fortitude to stand for Christ as well. You can imagine because their names are on official government lists and the Taliban has taken over those official government lists, they're on their radar as well. In at least one pastor's uh, case, they'd sent him a note. It said, we know who you are and where you are. And so some of these folks are hanging out where they were. Others are in hiding now to prolong their ability to remain on the earth and testify. But they... They need our prayers. You remember in 1 Corinthians 12, it says when one member of the body suffers, they all suffer. We should be praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, just like other persecuted Christians around the world as well. So that having nothing to do with where we're going and on a much, much lighter uh, heart. If if you ever come to our house, we live in a, a lovely part of Topeka. We've been there almost 30 years. We're kind of on a hill and we're right above Shunga Creek, and so we can walk down from our house, take a hard right. We're in a cul-de-sac, and there's a footbridge that puts us over the Shunga Creek, and then puts us onto the Shunga Trail if we care to walk across that. When our girls were growing up, just for something to do, routinely we would walk the four girls down. We would stand on the bridge, and we would look down for nature's fish, turtles. You know, we've got all, everything comes along the creek, even to the center of Topeka. But one of the favorite things we did was. Uh, we would play poo sticks with them when we went down to the, to the creek. Do you guys, how, do you know, see, there's a few nodding heads. These are the enlightened ones, which means they have read Winnie the Pooh. So Winnie the Pooh, uh, when he's on the bridge, they pick up a stick. That's what we and the girls would do. We would turn to the upstream side of the bridge. We would count one, two, three, simultaneously drop those sticks, turn around to the other side of the bridge and see whose stick 
came through first. Now, of course, the sticks would just keep right on going, right? And wow, you know, the Shunga, it keeps going and it joins the, this is your geography lesson for the day, the Kansas River. The Kansas River goes a little way down the I-70 and joins the Missouri River. The Missouri goes across Missouri and joins the Mississippi River, and the Mississippi River goes all into the Gulf of Mexico. So, I don't know, is this gross? I used to spit into the creek with the girls there to say, a little bit of Mike is going to the Gulf of Mexico right now <laughs> on that stick, spit, you know, whatever it is. So, but uh, you're on that stream, right? That stick, it just keeps going right on down that stream. And guys, in a similar way, it's different. This is cheesy a little bit, but you and I, we're on a stream, aren't we, of time and life. And you know the thing about this is, as long as you're on the stream and as long as you draw breath in this life, you're moving forward, you're making progress, just like one of those sticks on the Shunga Creek. If something doesn't hold it back, it'll just keep going till it hits the gulf. You and I are on a stream, and it's called time, and we are always moving. You can never get off it. You cannot stop until you see Christ, until you hit eternity. And this is the thing about time. Guys, you and I are always becoming something. You're always becoming more of something. So if, if you think of yourself or you think of anyone else today, and if you were describing them, and you say, well, so-and-so, they're like this. And let's just say that you got an objective, true version of what that person is and what they're like. The truth is, they'll be a little different next month than they were th at this moment, whether you know it or not. And next year and 10 years later, because we are not static. We are always being influenced by some things, by some ones. We are always becoming, the only question is, what are we becoming? So if we say this is a, a godly, upright Christian, as they move forward on the stream of time, are they continuing to become more of a godly, upright Christian or less? But you get the picture. We are always in a state of becoming, becoming something, becoming more fully something, becoming less fully something. There's always this sense of on the stream of time, and life, you and I are becoming something. What is it? Who is it? What kind of people are we becoming? As you look back on your own life, are you more or less kind today than you were last year? Are we more or less thoughtful of others than we were five years ago? Some of us aren't old enough for these questions to be necessarily helpful. Others of us, we could go many, many more years back than that. Am I more or less lustful today? than I was last week, last month, last year? Am I more or less sinful in my thoughts, in my actions, in my words? Am I more or less oriented to God today than I was a little further up on the stream of time and life? What is it that I have been becoming? And of course, the thing about becoming, some of it's very intentional. We're focused we're going to leave some things behind. We're going to embrace other things. Some of it's more incidental. It's like we're not even thinking about it. It's not conscious, but we're subject to influences that whether we're aware of it or not, they're influencing the way we think. They're influencing the, the view of life we've got and therefore what we're aiming for, what we aspire to. 
So again, the thought is that we are always becoming, if you were here, you remember last week's lesson, if you've trusted Christ to save you, if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, just like the family members in Greg's story, then God has a new ending, so to speak, for your story. God's interrupted your life. He's taken you off one stream and He's put you on another. His intention for us who have Christ's life within us is that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We saw that last week. Specifically, we're going to look at part of that call here this morning. And let me say this before we get into the text. Uh, Scripture speaks to all of life. And depending on where we're at in life and what's going on, we may need conviction or we may just need encouragement. You know, at any state, any day, any time of day, we may need one thing more than another from the Lord. The Lord knows that we don't. This morning's lesson, I hope, is convicting in this sense. We're looking at texts that talk about what the life of Christ in us looks like. And so I hope this morning that we're taking a hard-headed, objective look at what Christ's life in us is meant to look like. I hope you have a study sheet because there's a place for you to rate yourself in seven different areas. This is for your benefit, not for Mike's. But my hope is that uh, if you grew up in a house like me, a lot of kids, and you're growing, right? We had a doorway. There was a piece of tape on it. And you know what we would do? Do you guys know what we would do? We would stand against the doorway. And we used a cereal box. I'd put a cereal box on top of my head and I'd mark behind how tall I was. And so you could go to that and you could see how tall Mike was at one year and you could see how tall he was later and with my siblings as well. It was an absolute metric of how tall I was. This passage in 2 Peter 1 is like that in that it is a metric and just like the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, we are supposed to be able to look at that and say, I look like that, or I don't. Or I look like part of that a little bit, and in some other venue on that, the fruits of the Spirit or the character qualities we'll look at this morning, we might say, well, actually, I, I can see that I look a lot more like that than I used to, but this is a metric. And so this morning as we're looking at this, some of these qualities, you may say, it doesn't strike me, I'm not thinking about that. Others, you might say, man, looking at that, I realize I'm in a hole. That my progress in Christ-like transformation is in a hole in this area. I've seen none. Or I might say in another one, I might say, man, I can see, God, you've really grown me in this area. So the hope is that after this morning, when we go away, we're just aware, positively, perhaps, hopefully, Lord, I can see your hand at work in my life because I can see growth in these areas, these character issues. Or I might go away and say, man, Lord, I get it. I'm in a hole. I'm not being conformed to Christ's image. I'm still stuck in my old pattern. I'm still on the old stream, becoming something you don't intend for me to be in Christ. So that's where we're going. Uh, open your Bibles if you haven't. We're in 2 Peter 1. I am going to pick up at verses 3 and 4. Uh, we'll, we'll spend our time on verses 5 through 11, but I want to get context. And I, in fact, if you were here, no, I ran out of time last week, and so I didn't cover these, so I'm sticking them in. And praying I don't run long this morning. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, uh, His, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain 
to life and godliness. Godliness is a synonym for Christ-likeness, Christ-like transformation. God's given us everything we need to live life well the way He intends us in Christ-like conformity through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That's what we focused on last week, that transformation was by the knowledge of Christ. Uh, Verse 4, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So Peter's saying our course, the flow of our life in time was changed. We're, we're taken out of this corruption. We're put into God's magnificent promises into Christ-like transformation. Verse 5, for this very reason, because of what God has provided, because of what He's doing, make every effort. So remember in the ESV, it's make every effort. It's otherwise be diligent. This is one of those three be diligent passages we looked at last week. Make every effort be diligent. Work at it. Focus on this. Supplement or add to, supply to your faith. Add virtue. And virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness Godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. If these qualities, and notice that's provisional, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, in contrast, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent, be even more focused to conform to, excuse me, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, again, it's provisional. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 4, just picking up from that previous passage, he uses a word there, Peter does corruption in the ESV. It's a, it's a strange Greek word, pathora. It means to decay or to be destroyed. So the thought here is that we were on a stream that leads to corruption, decay, and destruction. That was our manner of life before. Think of Ephesians 2. We were dead in trespass and sin. Paul phrases it this way. Peter says we were in this life that was all headed to corruption, decay. You see that same word in Romans 8.21. This creation is subject to corruption. Why do things fall apart around us? Why is the law of entropy at work in this world? Because it's subject to sin and decay and corruption. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 42 and 50 Our bodies, the bodies you and I are in and and breathe in today, they're corrupting. I mean, even as we age and we grow physically in stature, the truth is it's all winding down in this process of decay. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 50, I think it is, says these bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We've got to have new bodies. These things are falling apart. The last one, Galatians 6, verse 8, the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption this this passage in galatians is important it says don't be deceived god's not mocked whatever you sow to that's what you're going to reap 
So if we're sowing, Paul says there, to our flesh we reap corruption. When we're choosing to sin, we're sowing the seeds of decay, not of life. That's the thought. you got a couple more in 2 Peter 2, and I'll mention just so I don't forget later. Peter's telling us things that are absolutely true of Christians, and he wants us to know these and embrace these things for our benefit in Christ-like transformation. But he's also doing so because when we get into chapter 2, He's going to talk about people who want to tell you God's will for your life and they're not speaking from God. He's going to talk about false teachers and they have a claim of godliness, but they're not godly. So he's showing what real transformation into the image of Christ looks like before he warns us about false teachers who will want to lead you and I astray. So we should be able to look at the fruit in their life and say, these people are worth following, these people are not. So it's about what's going on inside us, but it's also a warning against the kinds of people who will come along and profess to speak for Christ, and they don't. And can we tell the difference? Uh, false teachers, they're slaves of their own sinful corruption. So life characterized by corruption, moral and physical decay and destruction is what our lives were before God saved us in Christ. You are on the stream of life that leads to destruction. And it doesn't matter. Let's not kid ourselves. Many of us were good before we were saved at being religious. And the religious are as dead spiritually as the grossly immoral. So you and I, were born in spiritual death, and guys, dead is dead. So if you put on a good religious front, good for you and by the way i've said this before you know being religious is just a loser's game it's like why bother seriously why why bother being religious if that's all you've got if hell is your end and you want to impress yourself and others by being merely religious find a better game have a little fun along the way seriously it is absolutely a fool's game being religious and not being saved so we may look back, and we may have been religious, or we may have been very immoral, but guys, we were dead either way, headed to ultimate corruption, and that's what we were saved out of. So that's not supposed to reflect who we are today, nor what we're becoming day by day. That's what we were. God's pulled us, called us out of that. Uh, look at verse 5 now. This is our text primarily. This starts one of those diligent passages, make every effort, supply, add to, supplement your faith. And then Paul gives us seven more qualities, Christ-like characteristics that should be true of us. And not only true of us, but that they should in an ongoing way, they, that's what we're supposed to be becoming is more and more of these qualities. Be diligent, Peter says, in Christ-like virtues as opposed to the corrupting influences that were ours before. So, all spiritual life and transformation starts with faith, but it doesn't end there. So, Peter's call is to add to our faith that initial element that brought us into life in Christ. He says, now add to that faith seven more virtues or qualities. The guys on these, again, some of these will strike you as more helpful or not. That's fine. Take whatever God wants for you from each of these. And if, you, if some don't apply, don't worry about it. Uh, we're going to add to faith first, he says, virtue. 
Virtue is from the Greek arete. It means uprightness, right action, right thought. Moral excellence is my favorite synonym for that, for virtue. A couple of verses, and all these verses are on your study sheet. I'm not going to go through every one of them. Philippians 4.8, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, Paul wrote, think on these things. Moral excellence is something that when I focus on, I become a better person, a more Christ-like person. 1 Peter 2.9, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. That we're called to this moral excellence and God is filled with that moral excellence, which is why we praise him, one of the key reasons why we praise him collectively here on Sunday mornings. Uh, 2 Peter 1.3, God called us to his own glory and excellence. So when you think of virtue, so we start by faith, and he says, okay, don't leave it there. Add to your faith, add virtue. Moral excellence, we're trustworthy. There's an inherent goodness. Uh, when I think of virtue, I think that I may face temptations, but I choose to live above the temptations. That you can't ensnare me, you can't trap me with some temptation, because in Christ I've chosen to live above that. I want to bring virtue to bear in every area of life. If I think of virtue, moral excellence, doing the right thing internally, externally, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 is Jesus' perfection. And if you mark a 10, let's talk afterwards, okay? <laughs> 10 is Jesus' uh, perfection, and, and 1 is we're just getting started. Where do I rate myself today? So in the pursuit of moral excellence like Christ, where do I see myself today? Just be as objective as you can. This is like other things. Uh, we say a 1 to 10 scale. If you say, well, I'm not a good guesser, that's fine. If you do this over time, what you'll see is your metric will end up being helpful because if you did it today and say I'm a 4 on virtue, let's say, and even though I'm not sure what a 4 on virtue looks like, a year from now, if you did the same thing, you'll say, oh, you know, I think I'm a 5 or I think I'm a 3 just based on the criteria, the way I was thinking today versus then. The, the metrics are helpful over time. So even if you feel like it's kind of a shot in the dark, take a shot in the dark anyway. So virtue. What, what does Christ-like transformation in my life look like along the lines of this quality of virtue, moral excellence? We're not going to stop there. We're going to add to virtue knowledge. This is gnosis in the Greek. That's kind of the common term for knowledge in, in the New Testament. If you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 5, you were enriched in Christ in all speech and all knowledge. In Christ we have all the knowledge God wants us to have. You see that same thought in Colossians 2 verse 3. In whom, in whom Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ all that's worth knowing is laid out for us and think of it this way you remember in the garden of eden knowledge was one of the promises of the temptation satan made to eve you'll know something you don't know now you'll gain a knowledge that god has withheld from you and adam and eve did gain knowledge but they gained knowledge god didn't approve for them, and it wasn't worth having. Of course, it was death. It was, we, we know God's holy, and now we know we're not. And that's not the knowledge God was pointing them towards. So there's all kinds of knowledge we can have that God doesn't intend for us to have. So as we're growing in gnosis, in knowledge, the thought is it's knowledge about Christ, and it's knowledge about the truth. And guys, here's a simple question. How are you going to know about Christ, and how are you going to know 
about the truth. Thank you. My labors are not in vain in the Lord. We're going to read our Bible. We're going to read our Bible. You guys know I joke about it, but it is shorthand. We live in the Bible. We breathe in the Bible. We meditate on Scripture. We memorize Scripture. We think about it. We'll bring this up again later related to another element of growth. But that's what we're after because it's that knowledge that conforms us to Christ. You cannot grow into an image that you can't recognize, see, or define. And guys, you cannot know Christ in depth and over time apart from the testimony He's given us in His Word. That's where He reveals Himself is through His Word. So we gain the knowledge God means for us to have because we meditate in His Word. We see more of Christ. And we, we also have a filter to define what is truth, what isn't truth, what's worth knowing, and what isn't worth knowing. On a scale of 1 to 10, how is my knowledge in the stream of time and life, to what degree has knowledge of Christ and knowledge from Christ become mine and therefore helped shape me more fully into Christ-likeness? So we, Paul says we know in part, but we're meant, that part that we know and hold is meant to grow over time. The knowledge we have of Christ and from Christ. We can't become more Christ-like without that. So we're going to add knowledge. Now to knowledge, Peter says we want to add self-control. Self-control in the Greek is enkrateia. It is translated elsewhere, abstinence or fasting and uh, I love this. Uh, it comes from a root meaning power or lordship. And this, this is why I like this. This gives me a good visual. So if I say self-control and I take it from the root, the sense would be this. A mic is the lord of Mike's life. And it's as if uh, my life is a castle and I'm the king of the castle. And I say come or I say stay. And it's this sense, it's like a little uh, sense of separation between what Mike does and what Mike is. And the thought here is that I have the power, I am the Lord over my decisions. I am able to say to myself, come or stay. I can say to the thoughts in my mind, the temptations I face, the things in front of me, I can say do that to myself or don't do that. And that I have the ability in Christ to do that. Guys, none of us are victims to our whims, to our emotions. Remember the way this started. Everything you and I need for life and godliness, Christ-like transformation, we already have. So when we blow it, it's not for a lack of supply. It's a lack of will. It's a lack of transformation. So here, this thought on self-control is... God has made us, as it were, the Lord of our own castle. And as we look at temptations, thoughts, practices, what we're doing or not doing, we're supposed to be able in Christ to say yes to that and no to those other things. That self-control is that Christ-like characteristic by which we're constraining our lives to the place and the purposes God means for us. So when we're blowing it and we say, I faced a temptation and I didn't say no, it's as if I capitulated my role as Lord of the life God entrusted to me. So Peter is saying we have the ability in Christ to say yes to the things we should say yes to, 
No to the things we should say no to. That is self-control. You'll see this also, 1 Corinthians 9.25, which is a great, great illustration. Athletes exercise, Paul wrote there, self-control in all things. It's the same word. And we'll talk about this when we wind down, Lord willing. But if you think of an athlete, we just saw the Olympics, maybe you caught some of them. You know those athletes, they've just been, the focus of their lives for who knows how long has been on one thing. So their competition in the Olympics, it determined what they ate, what they drank, when they ate, when they drank, how they worked out, when the, what they did, when they rested. Everything in their life, the, their yes and no's, was an athlete's version of, I'm bringing everything to bear, I'm saying yes to what I should say yes to, no to what I should say no to, for this one purpose of this athletic performance. Well, that's the same thought here. Self-control for the purpose of growing more into Christ's likeness. You see the same thing in Galatians 5.23, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So as I exercise self-control, I'm... I'm turning away from corrupting impulses and habits that take me away from Christ-like confirmation. It allows me to progress as God means me to in the image of Christ. So how am I doing 1 to 10 on self-control, on being the Lord of my own life, saying yes where I should, saying no where I should, 1 to 10. We're going to add to self-control steadfastness in the ESV. That's from the Greek hupomane. Hupomane. It means endurance, stain, constancy. New American Standard translates perseverance. Uh, listen to a couple examples here from the New Testament. Uh, James 5.11, Job was steadfast. Same word in his sufferings. Uh, John, in the uh, Revelation 1.9, uh, he says uh, that we're brothers and partners in the tribulation kingdom and patient endurance that are part of being in Christ. As you think of Christians in Afghanistan today, you know what they need? They need steadfastness, just as the people in John's day did. People who were under persecution needed steadfastness. I want to say, too, on a couple of these a steadfastness, perseverance, endurance, these are qualities that we may not necessarily think a lot about. Uh, this is one that when I think of it, when I think of Christians simply packing up from one church to another, they lack endurance. Or when I think of Christians cutting off relationships from other Christians when God's not calling them to, it's because they lack steadfastness. Or if I see uh, God's calling me to some kind of change in my own life and it's difficult and I give up, it's because I lack that quality. God, that I'm supposed to continue going in the same direction, doing the same things, and I just come to a point and I say, I just don't want to do it anymore. Now we know God makes provision for us to get rest, doesn't he? Rest is a good thing. God gives us seasons of rest and encouragement. But a lot of times God is calling us to endure, to remain steadfast, and we're saying we can't do it. And God's saying, well, yes, you can if you choose to. You can endure. You can remain steadfast. But a lot of us are giving up in, in tasks, in relationships God's called us to when God hasn't told us to set those things down. It's because we're not we haven't formed that Christ-like quality of endurance and steadfastness. There's a passage, I think it's out of Luke's Gospel. 
It's a little bit along this line. It says, Jesus set his face like flint on his walk to Jerusalem. And the thought was this. He knows he's supposed to be rejected and crucified in Jerusalem. And he is determined that nothing will prevent him from getting where God the Father wants him and doing what the Father's called him to do. Nothing's going to keep him back. It's that same thought. You see all of these elements, of course, in Jesus' life in the Gospels, but that's a key one. On a scale of 1 to 10, what does my track record look like regarding patient endurance in doing what I know is right, remaining faithfully at my post? Think especially of relationships with other Christians, perhaps. So steadfastness, perseverance. We're going to add to steadfastness How are we doing? Are we still rating ourselves? Do we give up? Add to steadfastness, godliness. Uh, This term godliness is eusebeia. It's not tied to the concept of theos, God, but really more of this notion of godliness as a, a religious norm. And this is in a positive, not a negative. You know, in our culture and time, a lot of times if you say someone's religious, it's a pejorative. You're, you're, it's like they're a hypocrite. They're narrow-minded. That has nothing to do with what it means here. It has more to do with the thought of piety. So here's an example. 1 Timothy 2.2, pray to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. That's the word there, godly and dignified. Have you guys ever had the uh, experience, perhaps you've met someone new, and you talk, you have some interaction long enough for them, and they say something like, I figured you were religious. Or I thought you were a Christian. I've had this happen multiple times because I wasn't cussing when they were cussing or I wasn't joining in humor. Do you know what I'm talking about? They've seen something in your behavior. They've seen something in your life, and they th- the thought is, well, you must be like this. Well, that might be seen as a negative today, but in Scripture that's seen as the positive you look like a person of piety. You look like a religious person in the sense that you have a Godward orientation that constrains your life appropriately. That's the thought here on godliness. Right conduct, it's consistent with the claim to follow Christ. It helps us avoid sin and pursue its moral and right. How about on a scale of 1 to 10... Has my conduct become like Christ by way of morality, doing right by family, friends, strangers? Do others recognize me as at least, at least, being different from the crowd around me? And again, I mean, I mean in a religious, a piety sense. Uh, winding down, we're getting closer, adding to godliness, brotherly affection. I think this is another one that the church is in sore need of that we don't value enough and that's why we're in such a dearth of it brotherly affection you guys will recognize the greek term it's philadelphia philadelphia is a is a compound word it comes from phileo which can be translated either affection or love it's one of the four greek terms typically translated in english by the one word love but it comes from the other word adelphos which means the womb so when we say brotherly affection that's a great translation And I think one of the reasons we don't appreciate this term is the culture we're in doesn't necessarily appreciate this term. In the Roman world of this day, your family was everything. In the Roman world of this day, your family was everything. 
And you were supposed to do anything you could to bring honor to your father and your father's household. And when you got married, you were supposed to bring honor to your husband and your husband's household. Your children were meant to do that same thing. The Romans had this huge, strong bond related to the family that we've actually lost in the West today. And so, have you guys ever, uh, happened to you on Sunday morning, you come up and you see someone who's a Christian coming to the same church and your thought is, I don't like them? Now, I'm not calling you on that. That's fine. You say, I don't like them. But what do we follow that thought up with, right? So there's this call to have affection for others in the body that's predicated not on their quality, but on the fact that we've come from the same spiritual womb, that we share the same Father. And that's the thing. So we have this call for brotherly affection that's based on our common Father. So it's not just about that this person is this kind of person or that kind of person. It's that we share the same Father. And we're called to have affection for others who share the same Father. To the degree that we cultivate this kind of Christ-like brotherly affection, you can put up with Christians a lot more readily and over a long period of time if we're working at Christ-like brotherly affection that we don't simply write somebody off because they're a pain in our side, but that we're from the same father and we're from the same household of faith and we're meant to have an affection for them. And guys, you can choose to have affection for another person. This is a choice we can exercise or not. On a scale of 1 to 10, are we cultivating the positive siblings kind of affection for those who share God as Father and Christ as Savior? We don't want to underestimate the value of that. How are we doing on that one? Brotherly affection, Philadelphia. The last one here in the seven qualities that we, we supply to that initial faith is agape love, translated here in the ESV simply as love. You guys are probably aware this is probably the most common uh, Greek term for love that Christians are aware of. It's translated as love, alms, charity. It's a gift. John 13, 35 may, may be one of the preeminent examples of its use in the New Testament. How will people know your Christ? All men will know that you're my disciples if you have love. Now here it's not Philadelphia, it's agape. And you remember agape love is, we, we tend to say it's unconditional. It's, it's dependent more on the giver than it is the one receiving it. It's self-giving. It always seeks the best of the person that is its object. That's God's kind of love for us. That's the kind of love we're called to have for each other. And as you think of this one, the acid test is probably uh, What's my attitude, and just keep it within the household of faith for now, what's my attitude towards other Christians that don't, I don't necessarily like or they haven't treated me the best? Because agape love, again, it has more to do with the giver than the object. So God has given us Christ's life, and we have Christ's love, unconditional, sustaining love for others. That's part of what we've been given, part of what we're meant to develop. Uh, Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Uh, Romans 8.39, nothing's able to separate us from the love, the agape love of God in Christ, loving the unlovable. How are we doing 
on that one. How am I doing at loving others, especially those who I consider less than lovable? It is interesting in this progression, in Peter's progression of Christ-likeness, the life that begins with faith ends with love. Isn't that interesting? Faith and ultimately leads to God's kind of love. Uh, when we read through the Gospels, we see these kinds of Christ-like qualities in Jesus. They're a kind of shorthand uh, for what he is and who he was like as a man on the earth. Look at verse 8. This is propositional. If these qualities are yours, and if they're increasing, if, if, if you have them, and if they're growing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If these qualities are yours, and if you're becoming more fully like Christ in them, Peter says, well, then you won't be ineffective or unfruitful. Here's just an example. Think of this. To cultivate virtue is to be free from temptations that darken my conscience and limit my freedom to talk to others about sin in Christ. If I'm not virtuous... If my conscience is always calling Mike on the carpet for failure, how do I feel towards others? How free am I regarding others to say there's an issue we need to talk about, a virtue issue, a moral issue? Well, I'm compromised. I can't do it or I can't do it well. That's the thought. If these qualities are ours and if they're being developed, we're becoming more fully these things over time, then we are free not to be unfruitful, but we're free to be fruitful. We're more like Christ, and we can exercise Christ's will in our life and towards others more fully. Uh, look at verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. He's forgotten. He was cleansed from his former sins. Um, I've shared my testimony many times here, and I'll just share this very briefly. You know, October 5th, 1976, I heard the gospel. And I got it. It's just like, you know, the light goes on. The window's open. You know, that Christ was the missing element in Mike's life. The guy just shared the four spiritual laws. And it's like, ding, I get it. That's the hole in the middle of my life. It's Christ. Okay, my sins are forgiven. Got it. Faith in Christ. Okay, got it. Going to heaven. I've got it. And that was about it, guys. That was about it. I read my Bible a little bit. I enjoyed what I read. And, and this initial initial process of transformation had begun but it was about two years later about two to two and a half years later I confided in a guy that I knew was safe and I just said you know my life looks pretty much the same today that it did two years ago and I knew he was safe and so he didn't harangue me and he was he was wise I know he prayed for me but do you know what he encouraged me to do one thing he encouraged me to read my bible every day Guys, so I went out and I bought my first Bible. And I started reading my Bible every day. And you know what I found? I just couldn't get enough of it. And you know what I found? I found that transformation came easily because I was in the Scripture all the time. You couldn't get me out of it. That was what was at work. And all of a sudden, my eyes are open more fully and I get it. But I needed help. I looked at my life and I knew this isn't right that I look like I did two years ago. It wasn't a good thing. It's like, what's, what's missing? When we look at our life and when we use these as those metrics, I put myself up against the doorway and I've measured myself 
on virtue or knowledge or steadfastness. And I've said, man, I, I'm not growing. We ought to ask ourselves some questions. Why am I not growing? Because remember, we start with this assumption. God has given us everything we need to grow in Christ's image. Everything we need, it's already there. So it's not a supply issue. So ask ourselves some questions, at least along this line. The first is this, am I Christ's? Guys, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not Christ. You're not saved. You're not a Christian. Going to church doesn't do it. Being born in a Christian family doesn't do it. When I hear the gospel and I get it, God's holy and I'm not. I sin. Even if I'm religious, I sin. And my only hope of reconciliation with the Father is Jesus, blood, sacrifice, resurrection. And I say, God, save me a sinner. Jesus, I trust you. That's the track. That's the faith part of that progression. And that starts me down the road. We, we knew a lovely young lady, uh, guys, that used to come to this church. And she was in our home regularly. And we talked with her just like we would any other believer. And she told us after she'd moved away, and we had a little concern for her, but she told us after she'd moved away, she'd gone to another place, and she said, I realized I was never born again. I was not a Christian, and that's why nothing was going on in my life. And God opened her eyes, and she trusted Christ, and she was saved. But for some of us, we don't see this because we're not a Christian. That's the beginning of everything. We trust Christ for salvation, and we're saved. Are there areas of sin in my life that I've refused to leave behind? That'll... You know, if you think of the stick going down the shunga, if I put a fishing line on that and I hold it in place, it's going nowhere because it's tethered to something from the past. For some of us, we're not progressing in the faith because we're holding on to something from the past God doesn't mean us to hold on to. And that's keeping us from that forward progress. Unforgiveness can be one of those things. Failure to obey in one area of life. Sometimes we put progress on hold because we're just saying to the Lord, I don't want to do that. I know you want me to do something or you want me to stop doing something and I, and I don't want to yet. And so our progress gets put on hold. And the other thing is this, what in the world is informing our thinking? Guys, there's been no generation in the history of the world that's more distracted than ours. So where are we getting our cues? What's shaping our thoughts and our mind? For many of us, social media is the shaping, formative influence and not Scripture. What's shaping our mind? What's shaping our truth? What's our truth factor? Can we recognize truth and error because we've taken the truth in through God's Word? What's shaping us? So if we see, and especially if we said, well, no, we know we've been in the faith for a while or for a long while, and I look at this metric for Christ-like transformation, I say, man, I'm not seeing much change or progress. Guys, there's a reason. There's a reason. Because it's not a supply issue. It's not a supply issue. Uh, winding down quickly here, verses 10 and 11. Uh, Living morally upright lives doesn't bring about God's calling and election. He says, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Verse 11, uh, in this way... The, the way will be richly provided for you, entrance into the eternal, eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus. This is sort of life as Hebrews 12 is the marathon. If you guys have seen a, a marathon, the finish line at a marathon, it's a long, you know, it's miles, 20, 26 and change, I think. Anyway, what you'll normally see is this. 
I hope this doesn't come across poorly. What you normally see is this. When the marathon is winding down and the runners, the first runners are coming into the stadium because they always finish in the stadium, the crowd's excited. Who's going to come in first? They've been all through the town. Who's coming in first? Well, so there's this sense of joyous completion when the winner and those, that first crowd comes through. But you know what? In the marathon, you can sit there for a long time before the last ones come through. And you know what? A lot of the people are already gone. And so if I'm a marathon runner and I've trained, and Hebrews 12 talks about we take all our extraneous weight aside, we get rid of anything that keeps us from running. If I'm that marathon runner, I'm running with joy, I'm conditioned, I'm trained for it, I'm going to finish the finish line. We're all going to finish the finish line. Christ is yours, you're going to finish. You're going to end up in Christ's presence. You're going to get there. Some of us are going to get there more readily because we're focused on godliness, on Christ-like transformation. And others of us, he talks about falling down. The thought isn't here, the loss of salvation. I'm running the race and I fall down because I'm not doing those things, Christ-like transformation, that allow me to simply run the race well. And some of us may crawl across the finish line. Now, we're going to get there. But this Peter's call is, guys, think of that life like that race, endurance, put on Christ, run well, and it's like the finish line is there and the crowd will be there. You'll be welcomed into the eternal kingdom and you'll feel good about it because you didn't crawl across because you ran the race with faith. You added these Christ-like elements of godliness to that. You ran your race well and you're welcomed in. All of us are going to cross, but how are we going to get there? What will that look like for each of us? God wants us to run well and welcome us home with open arms. Well, with that, if you would, Stan, I want to read together Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 as we close. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let's read that together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.